Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December 20th, 2013. This is episode 1271 of the Survival Podcast. And it is Friday, Friday, Friday. But you might have heard a little lack of enthusiasm. You didn't get your... Friday, 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 you know, that one in there. That's because today will not be a listener call show, and that's kind of what that whole Friday, Friday, Friday thing's about. Um, we will do a listener call show. It will be Monday. I've got some stuff going on here at the place, and listener call shows generally take me to about 2.30 in the afternoon to be done with. Um, I need to run and do some things with uh, my wife today and uh, get ready for a family Christmas party that we'll be doing. So uh, I'm going to do that show on Monday, and uh, then on Tuesday... What we'll do is the Christmas uh, special, the TSP Christmas special show. Uh, a lot of people actually have taken the transcript that's available of that and made it part of their Christmas and reading it with their families. Uh, so you can either listen to it or maybe take the transcript and do that. But um, that's our official, we're done. We're done for the year. Uh, we'll see you in January. That's what that show is. And it's uh, I try to send you off with a really... You know, kind of a contemplational and upbeat viewpoint going into the new year, and then we come back and we rock right back into it. So that's the one change. So we're just going to move the uh, call show to uh, Monday, and that'll give you uh, a nice long show over our break period. If you can't get enough of TSP and you uh, would like to uh, uh, have more information or have more TSP during the break, I say take the break with your family. But if you want it, it's there. There's over 1,200 episodes now. Uh, you can go, and I want to tell you guys about something that's kind of cool. I think a lot of people have missed our announcements about or don't really notice or know about. If you go to thesurvivalpodcast.com, in the center column, you'll see Connect with TSP, subscribe with iTunes, Jack on LinkedIn, all that stuff. Just underneath there, right before the first banner, which is the TSP Gear Shop banner, you'll see a link. It says, listen to a random episode. And if you click that link... It'll just pick a random post. Now, occasionally, it'll pick something that's not an episode. It'll pick a blog update or something like that. You just click it again. Or it'll pick an episode you don't really want to listen to, and uh, you just click it again. And uh, when you do, eventually, you'll find something that maybe interests you. And you can. this is a great way to just kind of – it's like hitting shuffle on your iPod, but having the entire TSP to uh, pick from. Give you an example of what comes up. I just hit it. Episode 266, it's from a while ago, August 27, 2009, Eric Shelton from the Handgun Podcast joins us. Let me hit it again and uh, wait for it to load for just a second here. We get episode 769, listener feedback on the economy for 10-24-11. That might be interesting to listen to, something like that, especially given that we're now sitting here and uh, heading for 2014 and you know, what we were talking about and how it actually worked out. Anyway, um, before I get into today's show, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. I always try to rely on simple, natural things first for my health. Um, and it seems to be working. I haven't been to a doctor, a regular doctor for years, haven't needed to. And uh, don't plan on spending a lot of time taking pharmaceuticals. That may not be the choice for you, but... If you want to know how to either augment those things or to just take care of yourself and do a better job, check out Western Botanicals. 
Uh, they have herbal preparations for just about everything you can think of, and if uh, they don't have what you're looking for, uh, it's probably not available anywhere. I mean, that's how extensive their collection is. They're staffed by real people that really care about you, that want to help you. So if you need their help, give them a call. A real person will answer the phone and help you out. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. And remember, they are one of our premier sponsors. They give away a discount membership that costs everybody else 50 bucks to all members of our Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade, which just happens to be the same price as your Member Support Brigade membership. So that one uh, benefit, generously donated by Western Botanicals, pays for itself. Uh, check it out today at westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, I want to remind you about another one of our cool sponsors, KnifeKits.com. Probably too late to get stuff by Christmas, but it could be a late Christmas present for someone. Get them a knife kit. Get them a book. Get them a DVD that goes along with it so they can learn how to build their own knives. If you've made a resolution in 2014 to learn a new skill, make building knives your new skill or making Kydex stuff your new skill. You'll find everything you need for that and more at KnifeKits.com. They also do provide a discount to all members of the Support Brigade. So if you are a Support Brigade member, Before you order from Knife Kits, please go ahead and check and make sure you get that discount uh, membership. So those are two of our sponsors of the day today, and uh, check them out. And all our other great sponsors, best way to visit them all, go to survivalpodcast.com and look at their banners in the right-hand margin, then you know you're dealing with someone that actually gets my endorsement. Real quick, because I haven't talked about this in a while, I just want you to know what it takes to be a sponsor of Survival Podcast. First of all, you can't do it right now. I might take one in January as we let go of a couple that we've been giving the, the sponsorships as kind of philanthropy for free. Um, but there's no space available because people stay a long time once they become a sponsor. But when a space becomes available, I let people know about it and people say they want to be a sponsor. And if someone looks like they might be right for it, I go into the forum and I say to the moderators, here's somebody that wants to be a sponsor. I'm considering taking them. You have the next 48 hours to dig up any dirt or any problems with them or find any reason you think they shouldn't be a sponsor. And if two members of the moderator staff or more, but just takes two votes of a thumbs down, then I can't take them as a sponsor even if I want to. You know, I tell the moderators, man, I think this guy's great. I think you guys are wrong. If they say, if two, it just takes two. And, no, and once it's over, they do not have to explain themselves. It never comes up again. It's not held against anybody. It's just like, okay, we'll just get somebody else. I did that to create a sense of integrity in my sponsorship program. I also want you to know, I could be charging double or more for what I charge a sponsor right now, quite easily, if I went with bigger companies um, and just went on the total volume of what we can do for them alone. But it's not what I want to do. I want small companies where I can talk to ownership and get problems worked out, and where we're dealing with people-to-people, value-for-value. So I keep my rates lower so these smaller companies can afford to do business with us. It's a very unique thing. I don't think it's really ever been done the way I do it anywhere else in the world. I do know of one place, and the person that's using this formula cites us as where it came from. So I'll also tell you it's something I took to corporate America. It's something I took to corporate America over 10 years ago when I was laughed out of boardrooms for it, and it's resulted in something really, really special. And uh, I guess corporate America is just not ready for something special. Anyway... Before we get into uh, today's show, I want to talk to you about the year of the episode, 1271. What happened in 1271? Well, Alex has uh, once again come through for me and sent me more than Wikipedia would give me. The year is 1271, Yon the dynasty and the money. A young Marco Polo sets out with his father, Niccolo, on their famous journey to Cathay, China, where Kublai Khan remains his empire, the Yan Khan, 
will issue fiat money called Zorg Tong Yong Bao Jiu Chao, best I can do, meaning Kublai Khan's gold and silver money, suggesting that the paper money is backed by gold and silver coin, or Khan's treasury. But coins are forbidden in the empire for now. Inflation will cause the Yan Dynasty to create new coins and stabilize the economy, but that is in the future. So, a government that extended its empire in 1271 to cover almost all of Asia and parts of Europe and northern Africa decides at some point that we have to not use gold and silver as money. We'll put it all into a place. We'll say that it backs paper and trade paper, and we'll actually bar the people from holding the currency, the true money. And it causes inflation, and eventually they have to go back to a gold and silver standard. Gee, even the cons couldn't make fiat currency work. What, what, a, what an ironic thing. Uh, next up, Alex has, they raised the roof for Gregory X. The papal elections has dragged on for three years, so the townspeople made things uncomfortable for the cardinals first tearing the roof off the villa in which they stay so they would be exposed to the elements. The Holy Ghost is Cardinal John of Toledo equipped. When that didn't work, the cardinals were limited to bread and water. When Pope Gregory X was finally elected, he sat in place, he set in place rules for electing the Pope, which included serving bread and water to the cardinals if a decision was delayed. So it took them three years to name a new pope, and the first thing the other pope, the new pope did is say, yeah, we're not going to do this again. I'm going to make it uncomfortable. You guys are going to figure out who the pope is. Uh, the Ninth Crusade starts and ends. Last year, Prince Edward I had set out to take back Syria from the Mamelukes, but this Ninth Crusade has ended in failure in what is today Acre, Israel. They negotiate a hasty peace, so the Crusaders are being beaten back. So empires are being beaten back all over the place, which means that soon you'll start to see empires rising again from the ashes, new empires. Uh, it's almost like there's a cycle in history of monetary abuse, uh, abuse of others, use of force, uh, a, a point where those abuses no longer are sustainable, uh, some sort of an equilibrium, and then the rise of new abuses by those who can take power. It's almost like it turns in periods of four, if you know where I'm going. Anyway, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Now, on to uh, happier notes than the, uh, the concept of a fiat currency uh, destroying an economy and an empire. Uh, let's talk to somebody who can tell us more important things like how to grow our own food, how to grow really great high-quality food in very little space and even harsh environments to produce both our vegetables and our protein from a single system. And that individual will be Dr. Nate Story of brightagoratech.com. Uh, Dr. Nate, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks. Hey, um, you know, I've got you on here to talk about growing some of your own food, doing it with less space, and, and honestly some things that are wrong with our current food system. Uh, but could you tell people a little bit about who you are and uh, what you're doing? And maybe a little bit about the path you took to get there. I find that almost everybody I bring on this show didn't grow up dreaming of one day doing whatever it is they're doing. They didn't grow like if you're interested, in, you weren't ten years old and thinking one day I'm going to grow up and grow vertical food with aquaponic <laughs> systems. And there's always kind of this crooked path that leads you there. And I just find if we start with that, the audience just feels like they you know connect better with the guests. So could you 
tell us a little bit about where you are and maybe the path you took to get there. Sure, you bet. Well, um, you know, I kind of grew up as an Air Force brat and uh, traveled around a lot. And um, But, you know, my family, I kind of always had ties to agriculture. And so I always had an interest there. And believe it or not, I was probably 10 or 11 years old sitting in the backyard fantasizing about having a fish farm. So, um, you know, it's kind of come full circle in that regard. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I uh, went to school for a while and um, and uh, got done with my bachelor's after some travels and, and um, you know, just kind of kept plugging away. I had a prof who was really good to me, basically let me research whatever I wanted. And uh, so I just uh, kept researching uh, fish and plants and how we can grow them both together and, and make it productive and make it a simple system. And um, just kind of uh, kept going, kept going. I ended up inventing some equipment and decided that this was this was equipment that I should share with everyone. So I started a business around it and um, start, built a farm, built a farm here in Laramie, Wyoming. So we're kind of uh, off the beaten path. Uh, but we also uh, we've also got a farm down in Colorado now, so we're kind of expanding our farming operations as as we can. Very cool. And I mean, you actually went to school for all this. You actually have a, a PhD in uh, in, in, uh, in something to do with agriculture, correct? Yeah, sure enough. Uh, yeah, in agronomy actually. Um, so yeah, I was studying for a while, and there's there's a lot of different kind of subjects you can study under the umbrella of agronomy, but this was the one that piqued my interest. Do you see things wrong with our current food system, and if so, what? And is is that part of what led you down the path that you're taking? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, our our food system is incredibly wasteful. Um, you know, we we have one of the most efficient food systems in the world uh, when you're looking at certain inputs. So when you just look at, you know, the amount of food that we can produce and how quickly we can move that to market and distribute it and turn it into other things and put it in people's bellies, you know, we're, we're pretty darn efficient. But that's not looking at the whole picture. And when you start to really kind of examine the details, you know, the cost that it that it takes on uh, communities, on the environment, the resources that are used to to make modern industrial fertilizers, um, you know, and the toll that that takes on soils over time, um, and just you know the, the the spread of spread of pests, the spread of superweeds, the spread of all these kind of things that people wouldn't even imagine 50 years ago. Um, all of a sudden, we're looking at um, some pretty disruptive things um, coming. Uh, directly out of the way that we've grown food for the last 20, 30, 40 years. And so, yeah, I mean, there, there's all sorts of issues, and that certainly p- played into uh, my interest. You know, my interests initially were just fish farming. So, you know, we're, we're, we've got these huge farms now where we're growing tons of fish, and oftentimes, you know, they're producing waste, but it's pretty diluted. Um so getting rid of that waste is always a problem. So I was interested, you know, kind of from an environmental perspective and from an economic perspective, how can we make some money off of that waste and how can we uh, recoup some, some of those losses? So, you know, that was kind of my initial interest was, hey, we can use plants and use these uh, special tower systems and we can, you know, basically use this waste product as uh, as an input for our system. And, you know, that's a really old principle. I mean, putting the animal back on the farm has been a big push for a long time. And, um, you know, just the idea that farms are meant to be integrated. You know, there's, there's always a good thing when you have animals, uh, you know, interacting um, with your landscape on your farm. You're not just growing crops. So 
you know that that was kind of uh, that was kind of my interest, and that's kind of what led me down the path that I ended up going down. Very cool. And I mean, when I look at your site, it's very clear that you have products for both uh, the individual that wants to do you know some hobby stuff or backyard stuff, and for commercial producers. And it's also clear that you feel that everybody should be growing some of our own food. So rather than just reforming agriculture and doing things at the production scale better, which we certainly could be doing, why do you feel that it's also important that individuals take responsibility for some of their own food production? Sure. Well, I mean, just from kind of a structural perspective, I mean, everything needs to be decentralized. The more decentralized it can be, in a lot of respects, you know, it's not always as efficient uh, by the old standards. But, you know, at the same time, you know, people are, uh, you know, the, the food supply is less uh, subject to the whims of, um, you know, some big catastrophe. You know, for instance, you know, Russia a couple of years ago, there's the forest fires and the cost of wheat just blew up. Um, so, you know, we're, we're subject to market variables that, you know, we may not have forest fires in our area, but that doesn't mean the cost of wheat is going to stay the same. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a good, there's a good aspect to some level of decentralizing how food is produced and distributed, but you know, it's also just a fundamental human thing. Like I, I, I fundamentally believe that every human being in this world was meant to grow something uh, to use their hands, to have some practical understanding and knowledge of how uh, how to raise animals and how to grow plants. And I just think that's uh, that's something that we've lost. And I think that it's something that's really important, not just, you know, culturally and for society, but but to ourselves, you know, to our own uh, sense of well-being and, and how we see ourselves and how we see the world. So, you know, anytime I think anyone is gardening, even if it's a couple po- uh, plants in a pot, I think that's always a positive thing. And, um, you know, there's <laughs> it's kind of a popular thing now. A lot of people are really getting into, um, you know, growing, gardening, this kind of thing. There's all sorts of crazy stuff out there these days. But the reality is, is, is one at the end of the day, you know, if someone who hasn't been gardening starts gardening, um, that's always a good thing. You know, it's always a good thing. Yeah, definitely. In fact, I would say it's not just that it's a good thing. I actually think that when... People are completely disconnected from any level of food production, any level of gardening, at like they have none. I actually think there's something missing intrinsically from their lives. I think it's like taking a chicken and it, it no longer has anything to scratch in. You can feed it, you can keep it alive, but it's an intrinsic behavior. And yeah. I think we as human beings, cultivation is actually an intrinsic behavior in human beings. Um, we don't behave as though it is any longer. But I, I do believe that it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's been ingrained in us since the beginning of time. You know, that's that's what humanity has done. It's it agriculture is what built civilization. You know, and um, you know the reality is is I think you're absolutely right. I think there's just kind of this this need inside of everyone, whether they recognize it or not, to be involved in some level with growing food. You know, or growing plants. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I mean, if you take a kid that, that's never been taught one way or the other and put them into a forest, they start picking stuff and playing with it and looking at it and examining it. It it does seem very intrinsic to, to, to ourselves. It, what you do is you work with vertical spaces, though, in aquaponics. And, 
it's a little bit different of an approach. You don't, you know, there's, I guess, aquaculture could be said to happen in nature, but there's not a lot of aquaponics in nature. Um, for people that aren't sure about what aquaponics is, could you explain aquaponics and, and why you took that approach? Sure. Um, aquaponics is just basically integrating plant or fish production or aquaculture with hydro hydroponics, which is soilless plant production. So we're taking these two systems, and as it turns out, they're both pretty complementary. So the fish, you know, these fish are producing waste, uh, you know, feces and and uh, you know, just kind of uh, part of their metabolism. They're they're releasing ammonia into the water and fish you know if they're in a confined space if they're not in the wild you know where water's being replenished and where um, you know the ecosystem is robust and healthy will actually poison themselves with their own waste and um, for for fish farmers this is a big problem you know for fish farmers um, you know this waste can build up and it can cause problems over time and it's really expensive to get rid of so it's the kind of thing where they're looking for solutions, and uh, as it turns out, all that waste is actually uh, perfect for growing plants in. So it's you know it's really an age-old idea. It's nothing nothing new at all. Um, we've always known that manure is good for for raising plants. So um, basically, we just kind of connect those two systems together, and the waste from the fish is filtered out by the plants, and the plants grow on that waste and, and a few other things that we have to add to the system. And then that water recirculates back to the plants nice and clean. So it's kind of this really kind of complementary balance. It's, it's an ecosystem. Uh, we're building an ecosystem and uh, allowing the two elements to balance each other out and produce some food for us. Very, very cool. Um, and then you took that another level, and you really focus on the vertical spaces. Uh, why did you decide to do that? Well, you know we're in a pretty we're in a pretty harsh climate here in Laramie. We're we're at about 7,200 uh, feet of elevation. We got really low precip, and uh, we get really nasty winds pretty regularly. You know, two weeks ago we spent uh, a whole week down in the 20 to 30 below uh, zero range, um, with which, which with winds is is you know it's pretty brutal. But um, what that means is it makes heating greenhouses really expensive for us. So we're, we're all on wood heat. We've got a wood burning boiler system, but um, even so, you know, we try to use our resources as wisely as we can. So, um, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the things that kind of uh, was reoccurring as I was working on aquaponics and on this technology was, was a, the fact that, um, you know, the, the using towers, uh, was really productive over horizontal stuff. And then came, kind of came the idea, well, I could reduce all of my costs. You know, if I'm growing three times as much per square foot, I could reduce all of my costs by, uh, you know, two-thirds, basically. So um, in the same amount of space for the same amount of heat and energy and infrastructure costs, basically I can grow three times as much. So the towers for us were were kind of a response to local conditions. You know, it's not cheap. And it's certainly not easy to grow things here in Laramie. But with towers, you know, we're able to get a lot more production out of our space and uh, just basically use our resources a lot more efficiently. Well, and you say your, your product uh, tower, it's actually called a zip grow tower. Why, why do you call it that and, and what's, what's unique about it? Um, well, we call it the zip grow tower because the media is actually kind of zipped into, there's a, a strip of media and it's zipped into this plastic housing 
Um, so, you know, that's kind of where the name comes from. We just drop seedlings in, into the media as it's zipped into this housing, and it kind of incorporates everything pretty nicely. But it's, uh, you know, it's unique in that it's a really lightweight tower. It's modular. We can move it around really easy. So uh, we can reconfigure things. We can move um, different generations of plants around inside while, or while they're planted in the towers. And um, one of the nice things for us, too, is that they're really easy to handle because they're they're one-sided towers. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks ask why they're one-sided, and they're really the only one-sided tower on the market. And uh, the reasons for that is, you know, we played with four-sided towers, and, and four-sided towers, you get one good side on the south side here in the northern hemisphere, and then uh, your east and your west sides are kind of mediocre plants, uh, not usually saleable, and then the back side is usually just toast. It's, it looks terrible. You know, it's all shaded out. So... We, we, uh, basically just grow on a single side and all the other sides are reflective. So we concentrate all of our energy, all of our light, all of our resources, our nutrients, our water, our heat energy in saleable plants on a single side of, of the tower. And it works out pretty nicely for us. Um, you know, because they're, because they're really easy to handle and easy to reconfigure. We actually take our plant, our towers out of our greenhouse and we take them to market live. And then we just let the customers cut their own at the supermarket. And that, uh, you know, for our commercial stuff, that's really nice. It eliminates more than 50% of our total cost. So, um, you know, it's kind of a kind of a unique aspect of well, Hold our, on, let me make sure I get that. So what you would do is instead of packaging all this stuff and all, you'd just take a tower into a marketplace, and then people that want some lettuce or basil or whatever cut off a portion yeah, and you've eliminated that whole component, and they're getting the freshest food they could because it's 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 literally still growing when they they're they're self harvesting in a way. Yeah, that's right. You know, most folks, you know, there, there there's been this huge labor crunch in the U.S. in the last few years, and most folks, uh, you know, didn't realize that most of our agriculture runs on um, you know illegal immigrant labor. Frankly, so when they started really cracking down on illegal immigrants. Um, a lot of folks just left a lot of their crops in the fields and, um, you know, they, a lot of things went to waste and that's because, you know, about 60% for greenhouse producers, 60% of our total cost is, is labor and packaging after the crops grown. So it's taking it out, it's bundling and rinsing and putting it in a plastic clamshell, putting it in a box, putting it on a truck, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so by, yeah, by just taking it directly to the store like that. Um, consumers get the freshest possible product. There's almost no spoilage. There's no refrigeration required. And, um, you know, we eliminate well over 50% of our cost. Um, can you talk about kind of the production expected from one tower? Like, you know, what's the growth cycle for, and I, I know that you're going to say what I say all the time when people ask me about permaculture. It depends. What are you growing? What time are you? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, you know, maybe just pick one or two different, Sure. Uh, things that are commonly grown and say, well, you know, through uh, through a season, you grow this much lettuce or this much, you know, uh, of an herb or this much of, of, of a pepper or something like that. Sure. So, you know, we usually do about 10 crop cycles a year on each tower. So that's usually four to five weeks of production on each tower from transplant. And, um, you know, for lettuce and greens, we usually shoot for six to eight pounds per tower. And um, for herbs, we usually shoot for around two and a half to three pounds per tower. Um, so that's, you know, for instance, uh, sweet basil is a big seller of ours. And uh, we grow a lot of sweet basil. We can usually get about three pounds 
a sweet basil in five weeks. And, and, you know, going back to your it depends answer, you know, of course, it depends on the time of year and how much light we get. Um, in the winter, it's depressed. In the summer, it just blows up. So it's kind of uh, dependent on that. But, you know, with, with good light it, and, you know, kind of averaging it out over the year, we're shooting it. We're looking at about three pounds per tower on, on basil and six to eight on lettuce or other greens. That, that's actually pretty impressive. And I, I guess that it also it depends on what you're growing, too, because I noticed like one of the things you can grow in these things that I saw on your, your page selling them was like peppers. So they're they're a different type of cycle because you're harvesting peppers as they produce. Right. Yeah, you know, different crops, they really like to be treated different ways, and they all have their different maturity times. So, yeah, you know, for each crop, it, it differs. Um, and it really just kind of depends on, on what you want to do with it and, and what you want to get out of it. So, you know, we've grown everything from strawberries and peppers and tomatoes to watermelons. <laughs> watermelons. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you, man, they grow fast in hydroponic systems. They just throw on the weight. But uh, I came in one morning, and after growing these watermelons, there's about, you know, 120 pounds of watermelon smashed on the floor. <laughs> all one of, fell. They all started falling off the vine at the same time, uh, you know, because they're, we had them draped up, so they're kind of just growing hung in the air. Um, you know, we learned that they need to be supported after they hit about 40 pounds. <laughs> uh, I learned something interesting about plants. This is kind of an aside, but from watermelons, sure. that there is an intrinsic intelligence in plants. There was a, a garden that I had going in a pretty rough area in Arkansas when we had first moved there for a few years, and I had some watermelons there, and they didn't get watered for a while, and this plant had about six watermelons on it, and they were like half the size they were going to be. It was a smaller watermelon, so these were probably like five pounds at this point. They're going to be ten-pound fruits by the time it's all over with. And what this plant, this plant looked, all the other plants were kind of sickly looking, and this plant looked fine, even though it hadn't been watered and it had, had gone through kind of a drought and not been taken care of for a while. And one of the watermelons looked like a big fat raisin. And this plant basically said, okay, there's no water where my roots are, and it sacrificed a fruit, and it pulled the moisture out of that fruit to keep the rest of the plant and the other fruits and, of course, its reproductive cycle going. And I looked at that and said that, I mean, I wouldn't have believed that if I didn't see it. But it makes perfect sense. There's all that water reserved in that sure. melon, and it's it, it's amazing to me what plants will do uh, to survive if we give them enough health to work with from the beginning. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I've never heard of that, but I absolutely believe it. You know, I've, I never cease to be surprised at the things that plants do. You know, like you think you got them figured out, and then all of a sudden you'll grow one variety or one particular type of plant, and it'll do something just amazing like that. You know, it's pretty yeah. pretty awesome. So with aquaponics, there's a lot of different. There's deep water and there's flush and drain and what have you. How are these towers designed to work? Is it basically designed to work with? You'd set up a reciprocating pump and a continuous trickle. Is it designed to like fill a a, a, a tank and then hit a siphon and dump through in repetitive cycles? Can they be used in multiple different types of systems? Yeah, you know, there's all sorts of different ways you can run them. They're Super simple. I mean, uh, you know, we with all of our stuff, we just shoot for the simplest possible embodiment, you know. So with these towers, um, yeah, you know, we in our greenhouse, we run them continuously. Or if we have a really bad cold snap, you know, 35, 40 degrees below zero, we're worried about our water temps. We'll turn off the water to the towers overnight or put them on a time cycle, something like that. So, I mean, you can do all of the above. Um, you can configure them however however you want to. 
you know, they, they don't hold a lot of water. So it's the kind of thing where if you do like a time cycle, you got to make sure that you're irrigating them often enough that your plants don't dry out. But besides that, um, you know, it, it, it should work just fine. What is, what is probably the preferred method that your customers use? Is it a continuous, like a, a drip cycle or something like that? Yeah, you know, most of our customers run like a steady trickle or a steady drip. Okay. Um, just because it's simpler, you know, and especially once you get larger, uh, once you move away from some of the kind of the cheap but really durable, really, really great submersible pumps, once you move over to end lines and you're moving a lot of water, it's best just to leave your pump running all the time. And you use a little bit more electricity, but you eliminate all those hard starts. So instead of your, your pump, you know, you know, cracking on and then turning off and then cracking on again, you know, it just burns out pumps really fast. Um, and there's so, a big surge, there's a big surge load on the energy too when that, when that first fires up. That's yeah, not that's fair. right. Your, your startup amps are a lot higher than your operating amps. So, you know, those, those inline pumps, especially, you know, we're using like three quarter horse pumps that cost us 350, 400 bucks a pop. So it's the kind of thing where, you know, um, getting an extra six months or 12 months out of the pump is, is worth, you know, burning an extra, you know, $50 in electricity. Are, are your systems used by not just aquaponics, but also hydroponic growers? Yeah, we've got a lot of hydro guys that are using our stuff. Um, and actually our farm down in Colorado is hydroponic. Um, and, you know, it just it, for us, because we do it commercially, it's really just a market question. Uh, but it's also kind of a question of, you know, what inputs are most available to you, what's most affordable for you, and what your goals are uh, for the system. But, yeah, they, they work great in either system. The media that's in there, could you tell us a little bit more about it? I was looking at it, and there's a picture to blow it up, but yet that picture didn't work. So <laughs> what, what is that stuff made of? Sure. Um, yeah, so it's made of – it's a polyester material, so they make it from recycled water bottles. And it's basically just kind of this, uh, if you imagine, kind of cotton candy. Um, it's basically cotton candy made out of plastic, but it's really durable. It's really strong. It's not like polyfill or something like that. Um, so it's got high shear strength. It allows us to yank it into towers and yank it out of towers. Uh, for a long time, you know, most of our media has been running for about seven years now, and it's running really well. So it's the kind of stuff where, um, you know, it, it lasts a long time because it's pretty durable plastic. Uh, that kind of answers my next question because I was going to ask kind of about the life cycle of the stuff. Is it something you replace every season or what have you? But it sounds like you know, you've got at least seven years of, of track record behind some of these cores. Yeah, you know, and honestly, we don't really know what the the lifespan is on this stuff just because we haven't hit it yet. <laughs> okay. Well, that's fair but, enough. Seven years is damn good. I mean, so yeah. it sounds like most of your business is people buying systems, not buying uh, replacement cores. <laughs> no, that's not. You know, I mean, uh, that's not really a big part of our business model. You know, the folks that come back and buy more equipment from us, they're always buying additional equipment, they're not expanding. replacement. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, a lot of people want to get into this, but they're not looking to be commercial producers. They're looking to do sure. what we started out about, just to get, you know, produce some of their own food. And I think aquaponics has a real mystique for people. It's something a lot of people want to do, but a lot of people are hesitant to do. Is there a good way for people to give this thing a crack? Because um, you mentioned commercial growers and all, but you do a lot with hobbyist growers as well. What would kind of be your entry-level point for people where – you know, the system isn't so small that it's going to be very difficult to maintain, 
or uh, not produce much, but it would you know it's also not going to you know set them back to where they got to mortgage their house to to sure. To yeah, you know, there's there's all sorts of different entry points. Um, you know, kind of depending on what the goals are. But I really, I this I've recommended this to a lot of different people over the years, and helped a lot of different organizations kind of put together these types of things. But I, I always recommend starting with an IBC based system. So, um, you know, this intermediate they're called intermediate bulk containers. They're just basically this big square plastic white. Thing you've probably seen pictures of them, you know. They're all over the place, yeah. If you yeah, can't find them, go to Craigslist. There's plenty of them for sale. Absolutely. So you can always find these things, and there's really simple systems that can be built just by, you know, um, you know, cutting off the top and turning it into a grow bed, and uh, you know, you've basically got this super si- simple system. Um, you know, it, they're pretty bulky. You know, they're they're a big system, so if people don't have space, they're not the best. Um, you know, we do a tower, we do a tower tutorial on, uh, with three foot towers. It's a pretty condensed little system. It's a lot smaller, a lot, a lot less area it takes up. Um, so, you know, I guess the, it, the, the crux of it really just comes down to how much space you have to do it. Um, if you got a lot of room, then you can always set up an IBC system. Uh, just start with kind of a standard grow bed. And, you know, if you do want to kind of condense things up, then, of course, you can always add towers to a system like that pretty easily. Um, but, you know, in the end, almost everyone ends up growing with a sump-based system. So that's basically, uh, you know, your fish tank and your plant production is roughly on the same level, and everything drains back to an in-ground tank called a sump tank. And you pump out of that tank, and you send water to your plants, and you send water to your fish, and everything works out really nice and it's just a really easy system to put together and and usually pretty inexpensive. And that's an easy system to set up with a continuous trickle flow. And I, I think that 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 mitigates a lot of problems. I mean, I've seen some really cool flush and drain systems with automatic siphons and all and they're great, but whenever there's a failure, it always seems to be around the siphon. That always oh, seems yeah. to be where things go wrong. Siphons are a nightmare, you know. I um I, I try to be gentle with folks because a lot of folks get real excited about bell siphons or, you know, flouts or <laughs> these kind of these ways to kind of passively uh, moderate your your water levels in your grow beds and automatically drain them. But you know, in my experience, it's very hard to get something rigged up so that it works flawlessly in a biological system. You know, if it's in the back of your toilet, you're good. No problem there, you know, but as soon as you start having bacteria and, and roots and roots and algae, absolutely it just fouls everything up. And pretty soon you've got a flooded bed or you've got some other problems. So I, I usually recommend that people, especially on beginning systems, stay away from that. And, you know, in my experience, if you really want to do flood and drain, you can get the exact same results out of just putting your pump on a timer. Yeah, you know, that's a that's a great point right there. In fact, that actually simplifies everything. The pump runs for a certain amount of time, it shuts off. And with that system or with the continuous flow systems, your your problem always ends up being an emitter is just not running as optimally. It's clogged up, so you declog it or you replace it, and you go on with life. And even in a flush and drain system, you're going to have that to deal with anyway. All you've done is add another moving part and another complication. Right. Well, yeah, and I mean, um, for for your average person that just kind of wants to get started and have fun, the more complications and the more tragedies you have as you're <laughs> getting started, the more fish you kill, uh, you know, it just, 
it, it becomes a lot less fun. So the goal is just to set put together something that's really simple, it's pretty fail safe, and is is a kick to operate. You know, what what do you think the best fish for people to use starting out is? You know, that's really really system dependent. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of Nile tilapia. I use them, but of course, um, you know, the thing with tilapia is that you have to keep the water pretty darn warm, and that's not always an option for folks. So, you know, it kind of just depends on where they're going to put their systems, um, how they're going to use it. I do recommend shooting for fish that are pretty tolerant of poor water quality, and that's not because you're going to necessarily have poor water quality, but that is, be, you know, that does give you some flexibility. And if something goes terribly wrong while you're on vacation, it means that you can come back and still have a tank full of live fish. So, you know, um, when I first started, I had a permit to actually grow uh, common carp, which is just probably the best fish ever for these types of systems. It's tough. It's hardy. It'll eat anything. It survives just about anything. Grows fast. Grows fast. And, you know, there's a lot of people that talk trash about carp. But, you know, if, if you know what you're doing, they eat up pretty good. So, you know, it's, well, the, it's the most eaten. I think this is what people don't understand about carp because we're, we're kind of snobbish about it in this country. Worldwide, it's the most eaten fish in the world. There is no single species eat more than carp. That's absolutely right. Everyone else in the world adores it. And, you know, the funny thing is you go way back, um, and actually the, one of the reasons that common carp spread so quickly was because they were distributed. They're uh, actually labeled as the king of sport fish back at the turn of the century. So, you know, in our area, the Union Pacific Railroad would come by, and you could toddle on out there with a couple buckets, and they'd give you enough, they'd give you like five carp like five carp fingerlings, every stop, you know, they'd stop and they'd offer carp fingerlings to go stock the local lakes and ponds with because it was considered such a great sport fish at the time, you know, and actually in Europe, it's still a a huge sport fish. They love fishing for carp over there. Um, But of course, you know, in the U.S. now it's become a big problem. But man, for the same reasons it's become a problem are the same reasons that make it such a great fish for these kinds of systems. So it's not always legal. But, um, you know, in areas where it is legal, uh, definitely look into common carp or, you know, koi are essentially the legal equivalent um, that, you know, they're pretty water tolerant. Of course, you just probably don't want to go eat a koi that's worth 120 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the, the standard goldfish is pretty much the same thing. They just don't get really big enough to be usable that way. Um yeah. At least to my understanding. I've, I've seen some goldfish, like two, two-and-a-half-pound goldfish, though. Yeah. No, they, they can get pretty big. Um, they're just really bony, you know? Yeah. If you, if you like cooking them up and making fish stock out of them, goldfish will eat just fine. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> The way they're going in my stock tanks, I might have to do that with some of them. I've got, <laughs> I've got two 500-gallon stock tanks in a, kind of an aquaculture system outdoors. And uh, we threw 50 goldfish comets in both of them because they were nine cents a fish. And they were so small they would have been marginal for bait uh, when we put them in at the beginning of the summer. And these things now are about four inches long. Yeah. Um, and fat as all get out and happy. Um, so I can see using them one way or another, especially, you know, we're, we're the survival podcast. And someday in the future, there might be a better appreciation for the type of species we're talking about in this country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the thing to think about is that in a survival kind of scenario, you're the, the 
kind of the rubric that you use for making decisions is cha- going to change dramatically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you might be picky about eating nothing but your, you know, organic free range Atlantic salmon right now. But, you know, in <laughs> if, if, if uh, things went south, you know, you, goldfish would probably start looking pretty darn good. Stock tank carp would become <laughs> high on the on the list of desirables. And I've had carp pretty it's pretty good stuff. They have a problem with the uh the silver carp now in the uh, Mississippi where they have these schools of them where guys are driving through in boats to get knocked over by them. Uh but it's a highly prized uh, fish from an edibility standpoint in other parts of the world. And I've underst- from what I've understood they're actually having trouble Putting this fish to market because of concerns of it spreading further, which that's kind of backwards thinking to me. That if you were harvesting it, there might be less of them. Seems forward thinking, but it's just interesting the attitudes that some people have about things because of uh, the only the only word I can use it's a, it's a prejudice. It's not the racial prejudice we usually think of, but it's a species prejudice. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. You know, people have just made up their minds that carp are trash fish, and uh, you know they're they're not going to try them or or give them a shot regardless. You know, I, there's some old timers around here that just love carp, and they go out and they catch a mess load of them, and they take them back and they smoke them and and trim them up the way they like them, and it's great fish. You know, so you're absolutely right. It's it's kind of a prejudice against this fish. I think it's it's um. You know, it's become so common that when things become common, they lose their value, you know, um, in the minds of people. So I think that's kind of how it's gone with carp. People have just decided that, you know, I can go down the river and catch these things, no problem. Um, they're trying to get rid of them. They're just, they can't be worth anything. They've got to be trash fish. And that's pretty unfortunate. Well, I think another reason that happens is that people that finally will break down and say, well, I'll, I'll give this a try, they'll find, like, a place where there's carp living in a place that only carp live because it's, like, the the worst water there could right. be. It's muddy, mucky, nasty water, and this fish can survive in there, and they eat that carp, and it tastes like muddy, mucky, nasty fish. Well, if you could get a rainbow trout to live in that water, it's not going to taste good. It, it won't, but if you <laughs> right. could, it wouldn't taste good either. Um, fish very much tastes like the, the, the body of water from which they're from, uh, just as animals will have certain taste characteristics based on what they're fed. So I think that's another part of the stigma there, too. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's, there's just not a whole lot of understanding. I mean, you can, you can have farm-raised fish that still taste muddy and taste like garbage, you know, just because they haven't been treated right. And, um... So, you know, it's the kind of thing where, um, you know, a lot of the time it's just how the fish is prepared and what it's fed out on. And if you're able to catch them and keep them live and purge them in a tank of clean water for a couple of days, oftentimes those fish are just fine. It's usually a, it's actually an algae that makes them taste kind of muddy and gross. But no, you're absolutely right. You know, it's, um, people look at the water and they say, oh, that's bad water. Uh, so naturally anything that could survive in it must be a bad fish. Yeah, I think the the other thing that gets people is the red color of the flesh, which is hilarious to me because that same person will turn around and pay like $32 a pound for tuna. Right. 
<laughs> and uh, and Spoon like, is probably a lot worse for them. <laughs> well, know, mercury wise alone, probably. Heavy metals, right. yeah. <laughs> I, I digress though. For someone that wants to to get started, uh, you know, you talked about using smaller systems. Do you have kind of like a startup? Like if somebody came to you and said, "Dude, I just want to try this." Is there like a package for them or like buy this and then go get that after? Because I, I know you're not going to ship an IBC, obviously, but do you have kind of a, a starter kit for people or a way to get started for people? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, so our goal is to try and leave our products as flexible as possible for folks so that they can apply them however they want. But, you know, a lot of people, they want more instruction. So we've we've kind of started down the path of putting together uh, tutorials on how to build you know, certain systems. We've got out, we've got one out now. It's a tutorial on how to build kind of this, uh, it's a two barrel uh, vertical system. It's pretty compact and it'll allow you to, to at least dip your toes in the waters of aquaponics and, and learn kind of the principles and how things work. So, you know, we sell that on our website um, along with towers. And uh, I think that uh, the folks that have tried it really like it. They find it useful. So we'll probably continue to do that and release more kind of instructional things like this is how you set up, uh, you know, a, a sump-based IBC system with towers, that kind of thing. Um and uh, we'll probably grow that product line down the road. But, yeah, if they, if folks are interested, they can check out that little uh, small system tutorial. It's it's uh, it, it works pretty nicely. Well, and you have two different websites. You, it looks like all the products and things I was looking at before, they're on uh, brightagorotech.com. But you also have another site called Vertical Food Blog, and that seems like it's very, very information rich for people. Yeah, so, you know, our brightagrotech.com is kind of our company site. It's where we sell our products, and we try and um, get good information up, but it's kind of more the commercial end of things. Um, so we we try to separate uh, separate it a little bit from the vertical food blog, which is just kind of our informational blog, and we try to post just a lot of free, really high-quality information, you know, the kind of stuff. Uh, that people pay a lot of money for in courses. We just try and post that for free. And, uh, you know, from our, you know, from all of our experience with these systems, you know, kind of tips and tricks and, and things we've identified. But we, we're also doing like a nutrient series where we go through, talk about each plant nutrient and how to manage it. Um, but yeah, you know, that's, that food blog is just kind of more free information and, uh, just to help kind of the community out and, and see people learn a little bit more about uh, growing aquaponically. Well, let me just say, I'm, I'm sitting here now. I had a crazy week, let alone month, uh, behind me at this point. Uh, so I didn't get to do the research I usually do into your sites the way I normally would have, and I apologize for that. But sitting here now, just looking at you know the, the video content that's available alone, I think people really need to take advantage of this. I'm just looking at some of an introduction to plant nutrients and aquaponics. Aquaponic plumbing, the world's first aquaponic living green wall. What is a Zipcro tower? Uh, companion planting, best fish species, choosing the right size pump, ammonia. You're right. This is stuff I think that people would end up having to purchase other other places. Yeah, you bet. And the goal there is, you know, um, this information for us. I mean, we we earned it the hard way over a lot of years, and um, it's the kind of thing where. I feel like if folks don't have this information, it can oftentimes discourage them from getting started. So the goal with all that is just to make it as easy to get started as possible. And um, it's something that we can do 
you know, we try and do videos every single week and we try to post information every single week. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks have said, you know, this is this is the best information they've seen on the Internet um, as far as aquaponics stuff goes. And and I uh, I don't think they're too far off. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a lot of info. You don't realize it <laughs> as you shoot like, you know, a little three or four minute video every week. Or a couple of them every week, you know. But you know, every now and then I get on there on our YouTube channel. I'm like, holy cow, we got a lot of videos on here now. But um, yeah, definitely. I, and I think that's the way that more and more content producers need to build up content. People get so obsessed with we got to cover everything that they end up covering nothing. And if you just start covering something every week and say to yourself, well, what would be the first thing I would want to know if I was me 15 years ago when I started this? It would be this. So I'll start with that. And then you piece that together. And it is over you know, a long time, a commitment to putting out content that you, you come up with stuff like this. But I'm very impressed. And I'll make sure there's links to both your website and to your blog in the show notes. Uh, you've even got a free ebook on mistakes, which is probably more valuable than just what to do. Often is what not to do. Yeah, you bet. Um, you know, there's it, aquaponics can be a really fun thing, and it can be really a flexible thing. Like, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. Um, it's not always an issue of right or wrong. It's an issue of, of better or worse. You know, and um, we've seen a lot of folks. Um, well, let me put it this way. It's just better to say, hey, don't do this and just go out and have fun with the rest of it sometimes than it is to say, do this exactly. And, um, you know, the problem with saying do this exactly is that someone that's operating in South Florida, you know, and someone that's operating in Anchorage, Alaska are going to have real, real different kind of situations they find themselves in. And so tell them to do it um, the exact same way isn't always the best way to do it. Well, and you uh, you you do have some st- informational stuff for sale as well too. Though I'm looking right now at an aquaponics video tutorial, which is a step by step video showing exactly how to set up one of these smaller systems, and and you're selling that for like 14 bucks. I mean, I think that's that's completely reasonable in the market you're in. I think it's probably below market cost uh, on top of all the stuff you're giving away for free. So. Uh, I think that if somebody really wants to get this done, there's enough information there to do it without breaking the bank. Sure. Yeah, you know, our goal is to be um, is to be affordable. You know, we do, you know, for instance, with like a lot of our products, uh, you know, everything, everything we, um, you know, manufacture is made in the U.S. and it's made from really high quality stuff. And that's something we feel really strongly about. But it also means, you know, we, we can't go out and sell a really cheap piece of Chinese garbage for, you know, you know, seven bucks, eight bucks. Uh, Which will probably of, leach chemicals into your system anyway and make your healthy food not so healthy. Yeah, I mean, that's always, that's definitely the issue. Our stuff here in the U.S., you know, we can make sure that it's good stuff. We can do quality control and monitor, you know, the plastics guys, make sure that everything they're using is safe and high quality. In China, you know, there's no way to do that. You just take their word for it. So, yeah. You know, it's it's the kind of thing where some folks, uh, you know, they look at our equipment, and I always just tell them, you know, hey man, it's going to last you 20 years. So, uh, you know, it's it's an investment. It's like any piece of good farming equipment. Well, Nate, I, I appreciate you being with us today, and uh, especially uh, for folks that maybe don't know, uh, I had to reschedule you for working with us on that, and uh, for all the work you're doing, and for for sharing all this information with us today. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Dr. Nate Story, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough 
or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution is you.